Welcome to the Great Lakes Horror Company, brought to you by LibraryOfTheDamned.com. I'm Andrew Robertson, your host for this episode, and this is a bonus episode of the podcast as a part of our Pride Month series, where we speak with queer writers working in the horror genre. Today our guest is celebrated editor, author, and journalist Michael Rowe. Michael is the editor of the anthologies Queer Fear and Queer Fear 2, as well as being the author of the novels Enter Night and Wildfowl. In addition to his speculative work, Michael Rowe is an award-winning journalist and has published for the National Post, the Globe and Mail, Huffington Post, and The Advocate, as well as serving 17 blood-soaked years at the legendary horror magazine Fangoria. He's won the Lambda Literary Award, the Randy Schultz Award, and the Spectrum Award, and has been a finalist for the National Magazine Award, the Associated Church Press Award, and the International Horror Guild Award. He has also been a finalist for the Aurora Awards and the Shirley Jackson Award. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thanks, Andrew. I aspire to live up to that introduction. <laughs> so because we're, we're talking about queer and horror, what was your first encounter with the horror genre? I was one of those kids that uh, I, I watched the Universal Monster movies on Saturday afternoons uh, or Saturday mornings when I was a kid. And then I gravitated like a lot of 70s kids. I gravitated towards um, Tomb of Dracula comics and Dark Shadows and Vampires and witches were always my thing, um, so I quite uh, I was quite 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 taken by all that stuff at a at a very young age, and it kind of shocked my parents, but they they got over it eventually when I was about forty. <laughs> now uh, it's clear from the introduction that uh, from from that time in your youth and until this point in your life, horror has remained a constant. So. You entered the world of fiction as an editor of the vampire-focused anthologies Sons of Darkness and Brothers of Night, as well as the two Queer Fear anthologies. Um, and Queer Fear has been described as Clive Barker as anthologies that changed forever the shape of horror fiction. Uh, what was it initially that inspired you to collect and edit stories for anthologies featuring queer themes in the horror genre? And were there any challenges as you put that project together? Uh, the impetus behind it was was a kind of a kind of a, a natural one, I think, for a lot of a lot of gay men and lesbians and and, and trans people. Now, um, we just never saw ourselves reflected, and I, I had spent a lifetime reflexively transposing myself um, as a, as a gay person onto uh, usually the woman in the story because because the the, the men in, in were, were always these these you know very su sort of super super conventional heteronormative characters and I wondered a lot why there weren't a lot of um, a lot of gay horror stories queer horror stories um, featuring featuring queer characters where, where their sexuality was an ensemble characteristic and not just the story wasn't necessarily wrapped around that so um, Anne Rice uh, did wonders with the interview of the vampire uh, novel and and the subsequent sequels in terms of blurring gender and sexual orientation and when we did the vampire anthologies, uh, we did them as a follow-up to the Daughters of Darkness anthologies, which were quite, uh, quite, quite popular from Cleus Press. And then when I pitched Queer Fear to um, uh, Arsenal Paul Press in Vancouver, uh, they were quite taken with the idea of horror fiction that was just queer-focused, where, 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 where that was just a given, that there would be gay characters or gay antagonists or gay... Uh, you know, gay protagonists. The challenges that I, I faced, ironically enough, was getting uh, LGBT writers to write the stories. Um, it, it's very interesting now um, that, uh, excuse me, that's, that's Beckett, the famous black Labrador. Um, it, 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 because now, given the so much discussion about, about uh, authenticity in writing, it was very difficult in those days to get LGBT writers to write um, horror fiction. I think the reason that I had the trouble at the time was that a lot of them felt 
um, a lot of them that I approached felt um, that horror was still something of a déclassé genre, and queer fiction was just reaching its ascendancy as an actual genre at that time. And I think a lot of them felt insecure enough about the legitimacy of the, 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 the horror genre, the, or pardon me, the, the queer genre, that they didn't want to take a further step off the diving board and, and embrace genre stuff. So what I got was a lot of, um, I, I got a lot of, uh, I, I finally found a handful of really, really tremendous gay writers and lesbian writers uh, and trans writers too, um, who were able to write stories, but an astonishing number of them came from um, uh, straight people, uh, straight writers who um, were, were had the imagination and the wit and the courage, I think, to sort of go out on that limb. So... I definitely agree with you that for for a long time the horror genre has suffered under uh, being seen as less than. You have a few standouts, you know, when people look at, at someone like Shirley Jackson. Of course, there's a, a literary titan. You know, just as many people are. And Shirley be a... Jackson never considered herself a horror writer. Mm -hmm. So even then, even with Shirley Jackson, there was there was the issue of of the legitimacy of of horror. I think the more that that we look for legitimacy as horror writers, the more we find people that say, oh, well, I was never intended that way. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can just as well, you know, put Margaret Atwood in several categories mm -hmm. and, you know, people are going to argue that, that it's literature. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's also spec fic, it's sci-fi, mm -hmm. it's horror. Um, and, and I do think that a lot of queer writers in a struggle to legitimize themselves have tried to distance themselves from that. So at, at this point, having put those anthologies together and seen a measure of success in combining uh, horror themes with queer content, um, do you think that queer horror is starting to find its footing in the world of writing, or is it still struggling to find a place? Well, I think the question then becomes what constitutes queer horror, and I'm not trying to be didactic about it, but what I, what I mean to say is part of the acceptance of um, well, what, what we would call queer horror uh, in, in literature is the fact that it's become less shocking to, to the majority of readers. And I think that queer horror as a, as a specific genre may have enjoyed its peak in the late 90s and the early part of the uh, 21st century. And, and now what you're seeing, I think, is the fact that as society has evolved, uh, people have evolved to embrace queer characters as ensemble characters, which is sort of weirdly the idea that I had with the queer fear books you know, back in the, in, in, the, uh, in, in the early part of the 21st century, the early 2000s. The idea that a genre tends to only exist as a genre um, when people either approve or disapprove of it, and the minute they become, the minute they, be, they become accepting of it, and it becomes part of their lives, uh, it ceases to be, it ceases to carry the same punch. So what I'm saying is that I think what we're going to be seeing is more and more queer characters in books by non-queer writers, horror writers, and 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 also a lot of non-queer characters, a lot of queer characters in in. Um, in, in, I'm sorry, I'm getting confused. What I mean to say is, is uh, both queer and non-queer writers are going to be including queer characters as a matter of course because that's the way the culture is moving and that's the way society is moving. I think we've definitely seen that in book to, to small screen adaptations like True Blood. But I've never read the True Blood books or, or Dead in Dallas, which, whichever it's called, not to mm -hmm. disrespect the author. But I understand that uh, the queer characters in the books mm -hmm. don't get as much time... Uh, or don't stick around for as long as they did on television. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that really speaks to the idea of either acceptance or a, a general mainstream inquisitiveness mm -hmm. over uh, 
how queer lives are led or uh, queer characters. I mean, there's there's still a lot of camp when you look at something like American Horror Story. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's yeah. it's way over the top yeah. in many ways. Um, but I think those those are definitely sort of the baby steps in the direction mm-hmm. of, of finding queer and ensemble as opposed to tokenism and knowing that they're definitely the first one that's going to get killed. Well, I think part of that has to do with the fact it has to do with it with a demographic of population. I think that um, we, we are a proportionately small proportion of the larger population who are the consumers of the books and the movies. And I think it would be natural if, if not, you know, always ideal that that be represented uh, in, in, in the fiction. I mean, if, if you, if you have a majority, and this is always, this is what gets back to the tyranny of the majority, the idea that, um, that those, those statistics are always going to be reflected within the larger, the larger paradigm. If, if um, we are a smaller part of the population, unless a book is specifically queer-focused, it makes sense that we're going to be a smaller part of the larger story, and uh, for better or for worse. I think that's just, that's just kind of the way it is. Now, Queer Fear was groundbreaking in that it was the first... Yeah. Queer horror anthology. That's right. At the time that it was released, were there skeptics about who the audience was for this? What was the reception well, to the anthology? That's very, very around? brave. Arsenal Paul Press, Brian Lamb at Arsenal Paul Press was a very, is a very brave editor. I, I respect him tremendously. And he took a huge leap because, you know, it, it was, it, the first one, um, the first one was a real experiment. Um, we got some good reviews. Uh, we got some reviews about, that, that, that mentioned the camp factor. And, um, you know, it's sort, of, it's sort of like everyone who says something like, oh, the, the China cabinet crashed, that's queer horror, you know, is, thinks that they're the first one to do it. So it was a bit depressing. But, you know, I, this, and the second one got Clive Barker's endorsement, which is absolutely fantastic mm-hmm. and, and was, I, I'm sure, one of the reasons why it did as well as it did. Um, but, but it did, you know, it, when, you, when you break a boundary, when you break a barrier you don't spend the rest of your time thinking about how wonderful it was that you broke the barrier because the nature of barriers being broken means that other people pass through. And, and I think that the fact that a lot of writers, that we, have, we have a number of, of queer horror writers now uh, and, and non-queer horror writers who are writing queer characters means that, that you know, the, the, the movement has been very naturally forward. So I think that that was the result or that, and that was the aim as well of, the, of doing those anthologies. So... Let's uh, let's shift gears to that now. Uh, from the anthologies, you made the leap to full-length novels. So, what what drove you to write your first novel, Enter Night? Well, I think we just want to go back just a tiny little bit because in two thousand and eight, I wrote a novella called um, called um, um, In October, which is basically it was set in Milton, Ontario, <coughs> which is where I lived with my partner for a very long time, and it was about a gay kid who is bullied to the point that he. Uh, to the point that he's he's he can, he's convinced to uh, turn to the occult and inadvertently summons a demon that is he incarnates his perfect his perfect love object, but unfortunately also has a tendency to massacre everyone that has ever heard him, uh, and the story is about the murder of innocence. It's about the the idea that you can actually take a good person and you can push them so far with bigotry that their moral core is shattered. And I don't. I'm actually working on um, on, a, on an updated version of that, possibly to come out as an ebook uh, at the suggestion of a, of a film director I admire very much um, in Los Angeles, who was curious about whether or not that might make an interesting film. Um, but I don't know why I didn't. Uh, I, I don't know why that wasn't the impetus that took me right into novel writing because it's a really good piece of work. I think somehow the experience of writing that, and it was it was long, it's about forty thousand words, and I think there was so much internal uh, internal strip mining 
that I, I kind of had a mental block about that, and I went back and did a, a lot of journalism when I published a, a, a couple of nonfiction essay collections uh, in the meantime. What, what finally happened with, with Enter Night is, uh, is kind of a funny story. Uh, I had always told myself that I wanted a novel out by the time I turned 50, and I was 49 when it turned out, so I just made it under my own particular wire. But I was at the Ad Astra convention in Toronto uh, some years ago with uh, Brett Savory and Sandra Kasturi uh, of Cheesing Publications, and both Brett and Sandra have been friends of mine for a very, very long time before that, when we were all struggling writers in the Specfic community in Toronto. And uh, we were quite toasted, all of us. It was a very great party, and it was at the very end of the great party. And I said to Brett, and Brett said, I think Brett said, you know, well, when are we going to get a novel from you? And of course, I said, I have an idea. Let's do a vampire novel set in the 1970s. And um, Brett agreed, and Sandra agreed. And of course, I'm sure the first thing he thought when he sobered up the next morning was, what in God's name did I just commit to? Because <laughs> Brett hated, hates vampire stories as a rule. And uh, I thought, what have I committed to? Because... I mean, that, that's, the classic, that's the classic writer's conference handshake book deal situation where it just sort of happens that way. And then I was faced with this, this task of, of writing, um, writing a, a novel. Um, as a nonfiction writer, I'm, 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 I'm traumatized by word counts that go on too long because that's the mm -hmm. first thing we're taught of as journalists uh, and magazine writers is, you know, if you, if you, it's, this is what you have as a word count and you can't go over that. And what I found was... As internet progressed, I found the word count getting larger and larger and larger. But I also found it fascinating because I was going back to the 1970s when I was a child. And I, I was imagining what it would have been like to be me um, uh, in a small town um, in the middle of nowhere, thriving on my Tomb of Dracula comic books and waiting for my life to start. And I was able to explore a lot of themes in the novel about uh, small town bigotry, homophobia, sexism, um, it's, it sounds like it was a social justice experiment, but it actually wasn't. It's just these things naturally come into place. And when you are old enough that you've actually seen them and you can remember having seen them, it becomes less of a statement and it becomes more of a descriptive thing where you, you're actually describing something that's happened. I think it's a very accurate representation of the, the 70s moving into the early 80s. I was quite young in the early 80s, but yeah. there's certain things that people say, certain yeah. reactions, the way they yeah. look at certain people. It's very tangible. And it's funny because I didn't set out, I absolutely did not set out to write a gay novel or a queer novel in this instance. Uh, but there was a, there, the, you know, one of the protagonists was, was, was a gay man uh, who goes back to the town uh, with his, with his sister-in-law to start a new life following the death of her husband, his brother. And he reconnects with his, uh, his first love who is now uh, the, one of the town cops. And, the horror element overlapped with that, but there was also a lot of you know broken heart stuff and teenage teenage broken heart stuff, which is particularly painful. And you know it, it turned into this sort of really super fun romp, which I'm blessed to say has has done very very well, um, and continues to sell briskly. Uh, it's it's a big thick novel, and a lot of me went into that. Uh, I I really really super cored myself out for that and and put it into the book. And I think that I'm, I'm flattered to say that, it, that people seem to respond to it. Now, one of the people that responded very well to it is Christopher Rice, mm -hmm. who's a New York Times bestselling author in his own right. But mm -hmm. of course, you know, for people who don't know, it's this is Anne Rice's son. Um, and he's adapting his mother's Vampire Chronicles for mm -hmm. television now. Yeah. Uh, so I, I take it you're you're a fan of her work, her early work. I, I'm I'm very much a fan of her work. I'm a fan of particularly of the uh, the Mayfair Witches, 
Um, the, mm-hmm. the vampires, well the vampires, um, the vampires uh, are, are a particular type of vampires, and they don't necessarily hit every reader's buttons the same way. But uh, I think the Witching Hour is, is one of the great uh, American novels of the 20th century. I think it's, uh, I, I think it's, I won't say it's underrated because it was a multi-million bestseller. But um, but it, it the, the the historical detail in that book is so rich and the writing is so beautiful and it was one of those books that I really think should have had a a, a calorie count because it's just I felt bloated with luxury after reading that story. Um, her her research into the, the the witch the witch trials of the 17th century and and the historical detail about uh, the French colonization of the Caribbean and of course New Orleans and of course relationships and of course the supernatural was just off the charts for me. That was one of the great reading experiences of my life. And for a book about witches, it really steered clear from a lot of the stereotypes. It really did. And that's one thing you've got to give Anne, credit, Anne Rice credit for, is that she, she doesn't rely on stereotypes. She makes things that later become stereotypes. The, the vampire incarnation as we now know it is because of her. It's not because of any the sort of pre-1970s sort of uh, horror writers. Now, do you think between the two races that there's a chance they're going to get this television ad- adaptation oh, right? Are you kidding me? I think it's going to be fantastic. <laughs> I, I think I think Chris is a superb writer in his own right, um, with with his own very unique vision. I mean, he's not a cipher; it's not an imitation of his mother's work. And the two of them have a fantastic relationship. They have the mother son relationship, certainly mother gay son relationship that uh, most of us wish that we'd had. That's absolutely true. Um, now, with, with that in mind, you know, we've had several iterations of, you know, vampires, zombies, werewolves. Um, why is it that the vampire in specific is so intimately tied to queer culture? Hmm. You know, that, that's, that's, that's a question I've thought about a lot. Um, I, 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 once again, you know, I don't really know that it was until Anne Rice... Because when you think about it, prior to Interview with the Vampire, the, the vampire, vampire victim relationship was almost a cartoonish, uh, a cartoonish representation of a heteronormative, abusive heteronormative relationship mm-hmm. where the male figure is parasitical and the female figure is, is uh, submissive and, and, and basically there to feed the male, the male ego or in, in the form of blood. Um, and I think that there was something about Interview with the Vampire and the luxury of it and the gothic, the, the, the new gothic of it that spoke to, you know, spoke, spoke to a generation of queer people because here, was, here, here were basically Louis and Lestat uh, were a couple that managed to last for almost 200 years, you know, and that's, that, that's kind of a first. They, they didn't fall in love with women. Um, they lived together and, and had a sort of, a, it was like, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf kind of relationship where they swiped, sniped at each other and eventually terrible things happened. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, and, and look at Claudia and Louis. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, the early gay adoption, you know? Uh, so I, I think, and I think that since then, the, the what, what that novel did was introduce a lot of beauty and luxury and grace and elegance into the vampire genre that was not necessarily there before. And I think that's probably one of the things also that, Kicked off the interest um, of, gay, of, of of queer culture to uh, with, with vampires. It's 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 fairly recent. I mean, I think historic. If you look at the arc of vampire fiction, this is a fairly recent phenomenon and a tremendous phenomenon. Because when you think about it, this is what I was talking about before. Vampire fiction and vampire films were the quintessential heteronormative uh, horror film, uh, and it, it, queer kids had to work to find find their way in. 
because there was nobody with whom to naturally identify unless he wanted to identify with Dracula as Dracula, mm-hmm. you know, or the victim as somebody who could run and scream and carry her dress at the same time. But there wasn't a natural in. There was no sense that this was something that we were entitled to enjoy. And I think that horror in general, I think a lot of, a lot of horror has been like that. We have had to work extra hard to find our way in, which is something that we have in common with a number of minorities. You know, not to get all political, but really when you think about it, a story, if, you're, if you want to get into a story, it helps if you can identify with some of the characters, or at least the concept of the characters. I think for myself, uh, looking at the, the arc of the Vampire Chronicles and Anne Rice's characters, it also came to the, the real mainstream audience, late 70s, early 80s, just as the AIDS crisis was hitting. Mm-hmm. And so those two characters, to me, spoke a lot to that uh, urgent need for intimacy between two men, but the inherent disasters that could be a part of that relationship as exactly. well. And it was... Yeah. It was and I think also one of the things, I'm, I'm good, good for you for mentioning it, I'm sorry that I missed it. Uh, of course, the AIDS crisis w- would have had, the, the, suddenly the exchange of blood took on an additional, an additional poignancy. You know, so I think that there, there's, culturally there's that as well. Lesbian vampire fiction um, uh, has, has, has been more prevalent uh, historically than, than gay vampire fiction. Um, initially, I think, because lesbians, are, l- lesbians in those days in particular were titillating two straight men. And, you know, if you look at something like Carmilla, uh, Carmilla is an aggressor. She, she, has, she is as negative a force as, as any, any, any male vampire. So the, w- Carmilla is frequently touted as this wonderful breakthrough lesbian vampire story. Mm-hmm. But in actual fact, it's important to remember that this is, this is seen as a destructive relationship. This is, this is not the joys of lesbianism and how wonderful it is. Uh, this was basically uh, Sheridan Le Fanu doing what people in those days did and said, see what happens when you get off the moral path? You have women drinking the blood of other women. And the reader is getting, <clears throat> yeah. getting their rocks yeah. off on yeah. that content. Yeah. And, and really, frankly, um, intimacy like that between men historically has not been celebrated if it has a sexual or a uh, emotional component. Which is why, you know, once again, <laughs> thank you, Anne, this gets back to the interview of the vampire breaking down this particular glass ceiling. I think it took a while as well for people to come to terms with that relationship. Yes. In the book and in film. And yes. it took her saying many yes. years later, yeah. yes, yeah. they were a couple. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, our heroes. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> no, it's, it's, but, but I think it, the internet has changed so much because there's so much information disseminated. And it's interesting when you think about the, the time when I was a kid versus now the epic changes that have happened. And frankly, even the epic changes that have happened since the interview with the vampire came out. Uh, which would, I think 1976 maybe mm-hmm. something like that 1976 to now and, and we when you say vampire fiction now there's a given that vampire fiction is about it's sort of dreamy dark romances and that's just the norm whereas prior to that uh, you would have said vampire fiction and people would have thought of Dracula yeah you know and and it, it becomes this interesting question whether or not vampire fiction is its own genre now and not just not an automatic part of of horror fiction, which is one of the reasons why uh, Enter Night was a little bit different than than the others, because Enter Night was a bona fide horror story, you know, showing very much the the 60s and 70s influences uh, of vampires on me, you know, which is that they're not benign, they're 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 parasites, they're parasites that will kill, you know, if they need to to get what they need, and that they're not a force of good, which frankly I love. 
Now, keeping in that era and uh, the mention of Tomb of Dracula, which reminded me of one of your characters, mm-hmm. um, I read an interview with you where you speak about memory in the past as tools for a writer. Yeah. Uh, so how did growing up, uh, knowing you were gay in the 70s and 80s, present how, uh, affect how you present your queer characters and how much of your life experience ends up in your body of work? That's a really good question. Um, I think that uh, it's important also to remember that back then um, it, they didn't have the expression queer characters. You were a homosexual, which was a terrible thing to be, and then later you could be a gay, and I say that on purpose, a gay. A gay. And that could be, that. that's equally bad, just a shorter word. So um, what I remember from that time is a tremendous amount of guilt, uh, and I try to not have that enter into my characters because it's not it's not a salubrious uh, memory and it's also I think uh, it's it's it doesn't ennoble a lot of the characters as to the question about how much of my life winds up in my work I've actually been thinking lately as I'm working on the revisions of this of, of, of uh, in October that I've written three male characters uh, three three young male versions of three young male characters in three novels that I find traces of myself in all of them, and it stops just short of being autobiographical. Um, a lot of the, the, the young, the young man, the young man in in in, in October, which was set in the eighties, and um, of course uh, uh, Finn in Enter Night, and um, and uh, Jameson in in um, in Wild Fell, uh, all share traces of my own experience. Um, I think that in terms of my my queer characters. Um, specifically my gay male characters, I kind of know how it works. Um, I know what it feels like to be in love with somebody who later decides that he's straight. This happened when I was young. Fortunately, it hasn't happened in a very, very long time. Um, and it's devastating. It, and I, I, it, it really is awful because what the person is doing is saying, yes, we've shared this, and yes, I said I loved you, but in actual fact, what we had, the lo- what I described as love, is bad. And I'm now rejecting that and I'm going to become something else leaving you holding the emotional bag um, and the emotional baggage. Uh, so I understand that a lot of that went into Enter Night, but the character in, in, uh, the character in Enter Night, um, you know, he, he was able to finally say to his, uh, his ex-lover, you know, you're just, you're fucked up. You're just a mess and you're a coward, you know, um, and I'm not a coward, whatever else I am, you know, I, I'm not a coward. I had the courage to live my truth and live my life. So there was, you know, it was, but that once again, that felt, that felt normal. That didn't felt, it didn't feel like I was trying to, to kill the lily with that particular character. Um, but it's amazing, you know, in, in, in Wild Fell, um, young Jamie, um, there's a story about, about, uh, a turtle, uh, and, uh, that he found and, and what happens with the turtle. And that is a, that is an actual retelling of um, an experience I had when I was at Boy Scout Cubs, Wolf Cup. Wolf, yeah, I never got that. Never got that far in scouting. So it's a Wolf Cup camp that I went to one summer, and I brought this turtle back, and uh, it was destroyed. Uh, it had an outdoor pen uh, in the in the in the during the day, and it was destroyed by a, a, a marauding neighborhood dog. Uh, in my novel, it becomes something much darker than that, but there's a lot of truth in there as well. And I think a lot of authors just bring their a lot of writers bring their their own experiences. You can't help it because. Basically, you're driving your own car. The car that you're driving in the story is basically <laughs> the head, the, the windshield is your own eyes and your own life experience. Now, with life experience in mind, um, I've also read and, and we've spoken about the sort of landscapes and geographic locales where your work takes place. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Wildfowl, for example, deeply rooted in, in northern Ontario. And there's an incredible story about the, uh, the site. Mm-hmm. 
that you chose and how you you know I yeah. could could you tell our listeners yeah, about sure. your your hunt for that sure. house? There's um there's a there's a house in um, uh, Wyerton called the Corin and and it was apparently uh, yeah I, I it was hard enough to find uh, a few years back the site. It must have been an impenetrable wilderness when the novel came out. But apparently, this 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 um, this well well heeled politician and his wife built what basically was an English manor house on the outskirts of Wyerton, um, and and it, it it was called the Corin, and it was it was a beautiful. I mean, I got the floor plan. Uh, uh, I looked up the floor plan, um, and it had you know it had a gallery and it had a library. It's like Collinwood in Wyerton. And, and I went out there with a friend to find it because I wanted to see the ruins with my own hands, with my own eyes, pardon me, and touch them with my own hands uh, before I started writing the book because I had some sense that this was very much uh, the emotional representation of the house that later became Wellfell. And we did find it. We found it on a snowy day. And uh, it was basically ruins. The snow was everywhere. And uh, you, you, could, you could hear a tree branch snap. Um, and I came around the bend in the road, and there was this, there there was this mass of stones, this ruins, and I knew that I'd found it. And I tried to take some pictures, but my cell phone completely shut down, and it didn't start taking pictures again until I got out of the the area. And um, it wasn't just a question of not getting not getting reception; everything stopped, and it didn't start again until I was back on the road, far enough away from the site, uh, and closer to the town. Um, then it started again, which I thought, I mean, I'm not much of a mystic, but I kind of love that. I love the fact that, for whatever reason, my, my camera didn't work at this site. I just didn't want any visitors. No. And there was also, a, there, was, there, I, there was a cliff also at the edge of this, um, which factored into the novel, a sort of a straight down drop. Um, so I guess it must have been on a promontory, but that, that the land out there is so, uh, so uh, curvy and, and hilly that it, you don't actually necessarily see it. That factored in as well. And on the way uh, on the way out of town, I stopped in at a store to see if I could find some local history. And I, I got into a conversation with a woman uh, working in the store, whose grandfather, I believe, had been friends with the butler at the Corin, and they used to play chess together. And she fleshed in some more details for me. But uh, location is really important for me. Um, that was uh, that was well fell. I mean, in, in Enter Night, the landscape, the Northern Ontario landscape that I was writing about, the wilderness, particularly in the second, there's a there's a novella attached to that novel that, that is a sort of an origin story. Um, and when I was a teenager, I, I was sent to a very macho boarding school in Manitoba. We used to do these 900 mile canoe trips in three weeks. I had a very rugged childhood. I don't know how I turned out the way I turned out. <laughs> but um, but so so all of that that beauty of that Northern Ontario landscape, and I'm not talking about cottage country northern Ontario, I'm talking about the Grand Portage, like in the middle, literally in the middle of nowhere, is a landscape that has imprinted itself on me artistically, and it's part of me. Um, so I was able to call all that to four. And see, the other thing I found about novel writing that I really enjoyed is the fact that you actually get a chance to write down your experiences and your memories, and you get to sort of, it, it's like a photo album of words in a lot of ways. And it's, that, was a, that was an unexpected pleasure. Um, going back and visiting that, even with the scary stuff and the negative stuff. I think there, there definitely can be something about a location that helps a story almost write itself. Mm-hmm, exactly. Uh, you know, you, you get an energy from a place that um, that just tells you that it's got a story to tell. Right. Now, I've got two more questions for you. Sure. The first one is, in your opinion, why are queer people drawn to the horror genre? 
I think queer people are drawn, and this is this is my own my own take on it. I'm not I'm not writing holy red here. My own take on it is that the horror genre is about uh, it's about permeable borders. It's about the possibility of things happening that would not normally happen. And when you are a culture that has been marginalized for so long, and you're basically told in many cases that you yourself don't actually exist. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're told when you're a kid, you know, trans, trans people are told, oh, no, you're, you're really a boy, you're really a girl, and they're saying, no, I'm not. Or, you know, queer people saying, gay people uh, and lesbians hearing, you know, this is just a phase, um, it's just a friendship, there's no such thing as gay people, and you're not one, even if there was. The idea of a world, and a, a genre indeed, but, a, but a, I mean a world in the, in the sense of a universe of, of uh, experiences that provides you with the ability to assert your identity and assert, um, assert your, 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 your right to exist. And also whose borders are so permeable that with that experience you can move within worlds is very appealing. Uh, I, I think a lot of people who are not horror fans consider horror to be very negative, but I find horror to be, generally speaking, very uh, a very human, very human genre because you have people solving situations and having interpersonal relationships in a world gone utterly mad, not just where there's a war or an invasion, but where creatures are coming from beyond the grave. So you're very, it's very rooted, it's very visceral. And I think that we're drawn to it because we are forced at an early age to have an imagination that our, our straight counterparts are not forced to have. Because when the world is exactly as you are, and you find your natural place in it because everyone else is like you, or it seems that everyone else is like you, you don't necessarily have the same need to, to find your footing. You know, uh, I've often uh, said that one of the things that separates uh, queer kids from kids from other minority groups is that queer kids will not come home to a household full of people like them who can tell them that the people who are harassing them are bigots and explain a long, a long and illustrious history. They come home to parents, or have come home traditionally to parents who say, if you just changed, people mm-hmm. wouldn't treat you so badly. You know, be something else. So we are isolated for a very, very long time past the times that um, a lot of other groups are because we don't, we get to have a second childhood when we come out. Now, bear in mind, a lot of this is very generational and things have changed a lot even in within my lifetime, even within my, even within the last 20 or 25 years, things have changed massively. You come home and you tell your parents that you're LGBT, there's still an excellent chance that you're going to get thrown out and wind up in some youth program. But there's also a chance now in a way that there simply was not in the 70s and the 80s, where they will say, we get it. We've seen it on Oprah. We've seen it, you know, we, we, we know about Caitlyn Jenner. We know about Stonewall. Um, it's not ideal, but we can work with this. And that simply did not exist before. And that's something that's very difficult to explain to young people sometimes, that the world that they inherited is simply not the way it has always been. I I think that's a very accurate uh, way of looking at it. Because even now, you'll see queer youth that say, oh, well, pride doesn't need to be political anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, that's the result of them growing up in a world where it's not as bad mm-hmm. to come out as queer or mm-hmm. gay or trans. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a very different experience. And I mean, that's, that's wonderful. Yeah. You know, I often think, Oh my God, born in the wrong time. Um, well, this is what, why when I hear, I hear people saying, uh, you know, gay is so over or trans is so over. It's like the, 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 
the, the luxury of being able to take that tack is exclusively the luxury of an urban person living in a fairly sophisticated environment. Exactly. Every, I, I always picture, what must that sound like to the, 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 the queer kid or the trans kid who is getting beaten up every single day and now harassed on the internet, which we didn't have back then. Yeah. God knows how awful it would have been prior to, you know, prior to then. If, if cyberbullying had been a thing when I was a kid, I'd be dead. Be dead meat. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, it, I think it would behoove all of us not only of our generation, my generation, but also a lot of the young people to be a little bit less glib with the, the, the notion of something being over or done or so last year. Because somewhere right now, um, some trans girl is committing suicide or contemplating committing suicide. You know, some gay kid is, is being sent off to an indoctrination camp by his Christian parents who feel that he, this is the worst thing in the world. And they're all reading about, about you know, the things, that the atrocities that are happening to gay people elsewhere in the world. The camps in Chechnya, ISIS throwing gay men off, off um, buildings, uh, you know, corrective rape for lesbians and forced marriages. It, it's, it's not over. It's part of the human condition and it's part of life. And if we have one duty, any of us who've survived as children, it's to make sure that every other people survive as well. And part of that means holding on to our history. You don't have to be an asshole about it. You don't have to be pompous about it. But yeah, it's not, gay is not over. Queer is not over. You know, and, and trans certainly is not over. And I think that's part of our duty as journalists, as podcasters, as authors, yes. um, to, here, here. to keep that history alive uh, in the hopes that people understand what came before. Because you're yes. right, if you grow up in an urban core, it's a very different experience than someone even in Sudbury, Ontario, mm-hmm. yeah, um, you know, you you only need to go a couple of hundred miles outside of any of your major cities, and you're going to find something very different there. Yeah, and you know, we you know we we write horror and we have fun with that, but there's real horror in the world, mm-hmm. and I think that especially you know with with this being a Pride Month special, it's important for everyone to Absolutely. to keep an eye on that. So I thank you for making those comments and bringing that up. Now, for for listeners that want to find you online. Where can they find you? Probably michaelrowe.com is the best way to do that. That's R-O-W-E. Um, it's got all of the information. Well, it's got the information about my books, and, and um, you can Google me. There's a couple of other Michael, Mike, Michaels Row, which I am not, uh, but I'm the one with the glasses and uh, occasionally the bow tie. <laughs> and uh, what can listeners look forward to from you? We, we know that you're working on... The novella. I'm, on, I'm, on I'm just the revision. The revisions of the novella. Uh, there's a possibility that it'll be out this fall, and uh, I will uh, certainly it'll be posted on my website. I'm working on my third novel right now, which is about angels and um, and uh, the indifference of God to human beings. And I'm also working on my third essay collection, um, which uh, is coming along swimmingly, and I'm hoping it'll be out um, in 2018. No, this is 2017, probably 2019. Yeah. But uh, yeah, there's a little bit, little bit of everything going on. So something soon, something later. Exactly. For to keep exactly. An eye on. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Michael. The we pleasure really was mine. It. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you to you all for listening. You can subscribe to the Great Lakes Horror Company on iTunes, Google, or Stitcher. And if you enjoy the show, please consider leaving us a review because your feedback helps us improve the show and find more listeners. You can follow us on Facebook at the Great Lakes Horror Company. Just search for us by name, or you can find us on Twitter at GL Horror Podcast. If you have a question, comment, or idea for a future show, you can email it to glhc at horror-writers.ca. 
Uh, Great Lakes Horror Company is sponsored by Library of the Damned and is produced by Safra Jerome, Monica S. Kubler, and myself, Andrew Robertson. Our theme music has been provided by Leslie Corvoist, and her EP, Songs of Amergan, can be found on cdbaby.com. Until next time, remember that sometimes the scariest thing in the world is a smile. <laughs>